Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Everyone knows about the nuclear standoff between Washington and North Korea, but the nuclear standoff between India and Pakistan doesn't get nearly as much attention. The two countries have been shelling each other for months in the disputed region of Kashmir, killing dozens of soldiers and civilians. Both countries have hinted about using nuclear weapons, and they've both shown a willingness to play what amounts to a very high-stakes, very dangerous game of chicken. This week, India and Pakistan announced a temporary ceasefire, but it's far from a full peace deal. And that means the standoff continues, which is what we'll be talking about this episode. On Elsewhere Later, we'll talk about a staged assassination plot in Ukraine. But first, India, Pakistan, and a border region called Kashmir. So Jen, let's start there. It is the name of a great Led Zeppelin song that old men like me like. But beyond that, what is Kashmir and why are they fighting over it? It's not about Led Zeppelin, I promise. Um, so I'm glad you appreciate your oldness, though. It's great. Always. Uh, basically, Kashmir is a disputed territory kind of between India and Pakistan. So when India and Pakistan got their independence from the British, the two countries kind of split up. And there was a fight over who would get Kashmir. Pakistan controls the top part of Kashmir. And India controls the bottom half of Kashmir. And that is the state known as Kashmir and Jammu. So it is a Muslim-majority chunk of territory, and it is controlled by India, which is majority Hindu. And most of that section, the India-controlled section of Kashmir, doesn't really want to be part of India. They would probably more likely like to be ruled by Pakistan, to be part of Pakistan, which is a Muslim-majority nation. So, Zach, there's there's like a, a literal question about they're supposed to be a referendum. They're supposed to be able to vote on what they want to do, and they haven't. Yeah, that's a UN Security Council resolution actually demands that they vote. But it's always been undemocratically under India's control. In fact, the reason it came into India's possession after independence is because the Indian governor of the territory, who is Hindu, was like, no, I, I want to keep this in the Hindu state, even though the population is majority Muslim. So India, despite being a far more uh, democratically credentialed country than Pakistan has refused meaningful democracy in this one part of its country. And Pakistan has long supported uh, low-level violence, insurgent groups most notably, who have killed Indian soldiers in a kind of persistent insurgency aimed at forcing the issue. And this has continued in this at the state of low-boil conflict for decades now, with occasional breaks for ceasefires, but there have been no meaningful steps towards a permanent resolution that both sides can accept, because the claims are, much like other territorial disputes, like Israel-Palestine, are in some ways ir irresolvable. They both want the same pieces of land, and nobody agrees as to what the rules are for determining who gets it. Right, and it's also like India says, no, like we won't even really talk to you until you guys stop you know, supporting these terrorist groups that are fighting us. And Pakistan says, no, like, there can't be a meaningful, like, resolution to our conflict until we get <laughs> Kashmir. So it's it's completely intractable, and that's where we kind of are stuck. The geography of Kashmir, though, itself was interesting, worth talking about very briefly, because it wasn't always like this. Kashmir has a giant lake ringed by mountains. It's physically stunningly beautiful. And in the 60s and the 70s, this is where hippies went to. It was called, like, the Hippie Trail, there's a great quote we found as we were preparing for today from uh, George Harrison, who talked about visiting— Of the Beatles for you youngsters out there. Right. Oh, come on. You really think people don't know that? Yes. <laughs> but he went to Kashmir in 1966 and talked about what he did there, and we just all loved the quote. We traveled all over and eventually went up to Kashmir and stayed on a houseboat in the middle of the Himalayas. It was incredible. 
I'd wake up in the morning and a little Kashmiri fellow, Mr. Butt, would bring us tea and biscuits. And I would hear Ravi Shankar in the next room. And so you kind of get a sense of just, it was a relaxing place. People went to vacation. They were in this lake. They were in a houseboat. And now it's sort of hard to imagine that that place is now this place. Right. It's internationally famous for this long-running, simmering conflict that got a lot scarier in 1998, roughly, because that's when both India and Pakistan, in rapid succession, tested their first nuclear device. And the stakes of the India-Pakistan conflict, which beforehand had been serious, thousands of people had died in fighting between these two governments. But now there was the possibility of a nuclear weapon being used on Delhi or Islamabad. And that raised the stakes exponentially. So in 1999, when India and Pakistan literally fought a war in Kashmir called the Kargil War, the world held its breath, worrying that one side or the other might escalate to nuclear use. Thankfully, that didn't happen. and The war ended by India-Pakistan standards relatively quickly. But for the past 20-odd years, we've been living in fear of Kashmir igniting a war between two nuclear-armed powers. And, and I do just want to like talk very briefly again about kind of how we got here, right? So you had, in the 40s, Jen, as you were saying, you have partition. You have Kashmir for a little while being this kind of paradise people visit. And then this change, right, where it goes from being this kind of paradise vacation spot to gradually, gradually, gradually become a place where countries have not only gone to war, but there's been this prospect of a nuclear war. And we don't use that term kind of lightly or glibly. This isn't just sort of randomly tossed out the idea of it. But they have come close to full-on war, and they have both hinted, both countries, that if full-on war came, they'd go nuclear. Yeah, and so there's this concept in political science um, and international relations called the stability-instability paradox. And basically what happens is you have, you know, two sides that have nuclear weapons. And that kind of creates a sort of status quo, right? Each side has the incentive not to escalate to the point that it becomes a nuclear conflagration, right? So you would think— right, that that would cause stability, right? Each side knows they can't, you know, fuck around too much with the other side or we'll end up in a nuclear war. But that's where the paradox comes in, the instability part. Because of that, each side knows that they can kind of do a little bit whatever they want up to the point of not risking nuclear conflict, right? So they can kind of do these little things on the side, like supporting insurgent and terrorist groups, like, you know, shelling across the border, these kind of lower level conflicts that still end up, you know, killing people, that still end up, you know, wrecking lives. The people who live in this territory are not super thrilled about any of this, right? So you end up with this weird kind of paradox where at the broader level, you have this kind of sense that, okay, neither side wants to go to nuclear war. But then you have each side doing these little things that could actually end up Provoking, because that's the problem, right? You don't know where the line actually is. What is the line that you could, you know, accidentally bump into that would cause the other side to go, you know what? It's time to escalate. And so you have this kind of tension and there's no kind of way to gauge where we are in it. It's just low-level simmering conflict that could essentially break out at any time. And it's particularly scary because the military balance in India-Pakistan is really clear. India has a conventionally superior military. If there were to be a war between those two countries without nuclear weapons, India would win, uh, which is part of why it's retained control over Kashmir. The flip side of that is that it's, it's well known among military experts that Pakistan's doctrine has shifted to the use of what are called tactical nuclear weapons, right. uh, which means 
smaller scale nuclear weapons not designed to be dropped on the city, but used on a battlefield to counter the conventional superiority of your enemy. So in a stability instability scenario, you've got, you know, low level terrorist attacks maybe supported by Pakistan. India counters with a raid on Pakistani government facilities when it gets really angry. That leads to Pakistanis to retaliate. And then you have the situation where India invades Pakistan and Pakistan feels it has no choice if it wants to survive other than to use nuclear weapons. And this dynamic is so scarily plausible that you hear people talk about this as being the greatest risk for nuclear warfare of any conflict on the planet. Now, last year, North Korea probably eclipsed that, but— But a lot of people still—I mean, a lot of experts still say, like, this is one of the biggest flashpoints, right? So, yeah. And so that means that, you know, when we have this low-level fighting in Kashmir, it doesn't get the the headlines that North Korea does, but you really need to pay attention to it because it really could escalate in a terrifying direction. Right, right. so, you know, Pakistan's had the shift towards tactical nuclear weapons. India, for a long time, its policy was no first use so that they would not nuke Pakistan to begin with, but if Pakistan used that weapon, they'd respond. You have, on the technological front, Tom Hunley did a really good piece for Vox.com about how both countries are developing nuclear submarines, which are— on the one hand, easier to fire nukes from. On the other hand, you can't talk to them as easily. So the possibility of a miscommunication rises very rapidly. But if you want to look for any part of like a silver lining here, it's that the two militaries do talk. The two countries do talk. This isn't like a, a North Korea, South Korea situation. And in 2003, they struck a ceasefire agreement. I mean, they, recognizing the dangers, said, we will stop the violence. Like, we will not let this get worse than it's supposed to be. And that hasn't helped, right? Like, what's led to kind of the violence since 2003 and what's led to the truce we're talking about this week is the simple fact that they have tried to find some way of keeping it calm, of fighting in a way that leads to peace and not leads to actual war. And that's not what held, right? Like the ceasefire that they tried to strike fell apart almost immediately. Right. So uh, I think according to the New York Times, Pakistan last year alone reported almost 2,000 ceasefire violations and India reported almost 1,000. So that's a lot of ceasefire violations, right? And that's just, like, last year. Clearly, like, it's a ceasefire in name only. And that's why they've come back again now and said, okay, for realsies this time, like, let's go back to the ceasefire. So, like, a lot of people are saying, like, oh, there's a new ceasefire. It's actually that they're just finally kind of agreeing to abide by the one they literally signed 15 years ago. And the thing that makes this even more complicated and harder to track is that as we've hinted at throughout this episode, the Pakistani government, specifically the Pakistani military and intelligence services, have been supporting a, an ongoing insurgency against the Indian authorities in Kashmir. And so India will regularly conduct these violent counterterrorism operations, which are not exactly targeting the Pakistani military across the border, but they're targeting militants who everybody knows are supported by certain branches of the Pakistani government. So until parts of the Pakistani government stop supporting these insurgencies, any ceasefire formally concluded between the two governments or any agreement to abide by the 2003 ceasefire is inherently precarious. Right. And that's why the the people who actually live in Kashmir are cautiously optimistic that this will hold, but, you know, they've lived under this cross-border shelling and this violence for for decades. So there's a great quote in the New York Times uh, from 
this 72-year-old farmer whose village is about a half mile from the border. And he told the Times, quote, for the last six to seven months, the firing has been very intense and we can't live in our village. Quote, we can't do our agriculture, we can't rear our animals, and our children can't go to school. Our lives become hell during the firing. We are happy with the ceasefire news and hope it will last. I mean, I think part of what what he captures, and it is such a, a powerful quote and so important to remember, you know, and, and I'm glad, Jen, that you always remind us of this, that these aren't just kind of policy things in the abstract. These are real human beings who are living, dying, and suffering because of it. Kashmir, there are no good guys, right? Like, it's sort of appealing to say, hey, in conflict blank, there's a good guy and a bad guy. And to think, in this particular conflict, one country is a military dictatorship, largely speaking. One's a huge democracy. Therefore, the huge democracy are the good guys. And that's not true. You've had multiple reports, very credible reports, of systematic human rights violations by the Indian military. Right. Because the people that they're often arresting, killing, their reports of mass rape are not necessarily insurgents or even insurgent suspects. They're oftentimes just ordinary Muslims. And we talk on the show a lot about kind of sectarian conflict, often Shia Sunni in the Arab and Muslim world. But here you have a sectarian conflict of Hindu soldiers, largely Hindu soldiers, committing mass human rights violations against largely Muslim civilians as well as Muslim militants. And that part of it, the fact that there is no good person here and there is no bad person here, is I think also part of what makes this conflict not only so hard to understand, but so hard to figure out how should it resolve, right? Like who should get it when neither side is really good in this right. conflict. And meanwhile, people on the ground, right, who are the ones who are suffering while these two powerful governments fight over their own land, right? And they're just like in the middle. They have no say. You know, they don't really get to to decide this. They're just kind of stuck in the middle. It's a horrifying situation. And Zach, there was one point you made when we were talking about this yesterday that I thought was really powerful, that in part because people are not tracking this conflict and in part because as you were saying before, it's kind of simmering along, simmering along, it is really important to understand for journalists, for listeners, that the nuclear crisis facing the world isn't simply North Korea. It's this. That's right. I mean, this, as we've discussed throughout this episode, this is a major, major nuclear standoff with tremendous implications, not just for the people who live there who are the most immediate victims of the conflict, but for the entire world. A, a nuclear war between India and Pakistan would kill millions of people. It would have environmental knock-on effects that could be tragic for the entire globe. Massive refugee crisis, right? The, Massive devastation. The the amount of energy and attention that we spend on this issue relative to the potential consequences if things go south is truly, truly disproportionate. That's where we'll close this segment. After the break, we'll go to Ukraine. Tomorrow is National Gun Violence Awareness Day and the start of Wear Orange Weekend. People around the country are coming together with a simple message. There's more we can do to end gun violence. Every year, every town for gun safety and a coalition of partners call on Americans to wear orange to honor the more than 90 lives cut short by gun violence every day and to demand action towards a future free from gun violence. Join the movement by wearing orange tomorrow, June 1st, and post your pictures online using the hashtag WearOrange to show you're committed to ending gun violence. We all have tasks, big ones, small ones, that prevent us from being the best versions of ourselves or just having a life that isn't overcome by constant stress. Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant that can handle a lot of the most administrative aspects of your life. So it declutters your to-do list, and it keeps you focused on the things you enjoy and that matter most. 
Thousands of busy people already rely on Finn to handle things like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, or more complex jobs like creating a website or hiring a freelancer. It takes care of the stuff that's kind of annoying so you could take care of the stuff that's more fun and so you could be more productive. Finn's like having a personal assistant who's there 24 seven, 365 days a year. It could take care of all aspects of planning a trip, finding flights, making dinner reservations, booking a hotel within minutes of where you wanna be for a meeting. You don't have to lift a finger to have this amazing trip come together. Finn mixes the best of human and artificial intelligence to deliver a top flight service to manage your calendar, book appointments, take care of travel plans, pay bills. It learns and remembers your preferences. Let's say you prefer aisle seats, it'll remember that. The kind of meeting length you like, it'll remember that. Your favorite restaurants, it'll remember that. On average, it can save you 200 hours a year. Here's the best part. With Finn, you only pay for what you use. And once you try Finn, I think you're gonna love it as much as we all do. And as listeners of our show, we've arranged for you all to get Finn for free. Just use this link, finn.com slash world. That's finn.com slash world to try it for free. Again, it's finn.com slash world. You might've heard that we just launched a show on Netflix. It's called Explained. And every episode is a 15 minute deep dive into one important topic. I just saw this week's episode, which is fantastic. And it's all about how K-pop, music from South Korea, became a global phenomenon. It talked about the politics in and outside of South Korea that led to K-pop. It showed clips of how K-pop developed. They talked about how K-pop songs mix different genres from hip hop to sort of EDM to dance music back to hip hop. And one of the bands they highlighted, BTS, just made history. It is now the first K-pop band ever to hit the top of the US Billboard charts. So if you want to know more about how a band from another country could do that, if you want to know more about how this music developed, if you want to hear what it sounds like, come find it on Netflix. You could search for Vox or go straight to netflix.com backslash explain. For elsewhere this week, we're going to Ukraine for an assassination story with a twist. The story is about Russian journalist Arkady Babchenko. On Tuesday, he was reported dead, shot supposedly in his Kiev apartment. There were photos released showing a corpse face down in blood. And then suddenly he was not dead. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, who was this guy? Like, why would a journalist matter? Why would the story of a, a journalist being killed in Ukraine make news around the world? Because he wasn't just a journalist, right? He was a, a significant figure in the Russian opposition to Putin. He stood in opposition elections on official ones. He has been a critic of Putin's policies in both Syria and eastern Ukraine. And then he left Russia in 2017 over fears of persecution by the Putin government, which turned out to be totally not misplaced, considering Putin hired Ukrainians to get an assassin to come after him. Now, it turns out the assassins didn't do their job very well, right, Chen? Like, you're, you're the spy craft lover here. You go to the U.S. Spy Museum all the time. I do go to the International Spy Museum. It is my favorite place. This guy is really important, right? He wasn't, like you said, just a journalist. And he wasn't even just an opposition figure. He was really respected. So he had served a, a distinguished career in the Russian military. He had uh, fought in the war in Chechnya. Um, he was very well respected. He wrote this book kind of all about his time in the military. And he was a very kind of important kind of figure. And he was very vocal critic of Putin. And then there are these photos and this huge story about him being assassinated. And, and it was horrifying, right? His, his all his colleagues in journalism and, and all across the world were mourning. They were heartbroken, right? And these journalist organizations who, you know, the Committee to Protect Journalists and things like that 
were just, you know, outraged, uh, rightfully so, that this journalist was murdered in cold blood. Um, they had set up like a, a, a fund for his widow. They set up a memorial plaque with his with his face, this photo of him. People were leaving flowers. Um, and it was a massive story. I mean, you had actually also beyond the plaque, which was a self-amazing, the, at one of the security forums in, in Oslo, an opera was performed and dedicated to him. And part of, I think, why this made so much news, you know, Zach, you hinted at this a little bit, but Putin murders journalists all the time. I mean, if you're a human rights critic, if you criticize his government, if you're a journalist, mysteriously, you have a car crash or you're shot dead in your apartment lobby. But, you know, to your point, if you are in Russia, Putin could kill you pretty easily. And so this was seen as an example of a guy who does kill journalists in his own country all the time, now going outside of his borders to kill a journalist there. And suddenly you have this mass story of the Ukrainian government accusing Russia, Russia denying it, people around the world just kind of assuming it's true. And then you've got this rather amazing press conference held in Kiev. Right. So this was a press conference that the Ukrainian security services were, it's like a normal press conference after a murder or an assassination or like a mass shooting, right? And that's what they were told that they were coming to. And then all of a sudden, the actual assassination victim just walks out. Everyone, like, all of a sudden, it kind of dawns on them. And they're all like, gasping and clapping and, and, oh, my God, what's going on? And he has this, like, kind of sheepish little grin on his face. And he's just like, yeah, hi. And he's, like, in this little, like, black sweatshirt. It says Journey on it. I'm not sure if it's for the band Journey, but I really hope it is. Here's my favorite quote from the from the presser. Special apologies to my wife for the hell she's been through for the past two days. Olia, excuse me, please, but there is no other option. Right. So it turns out that even his wife wasn't in on it. Right. So when we talk about in on it, there was an actual assassination plot. So it wasn't that, like... He just faked his death. The Ukrainian security service figured out that there was this plot from Russia, from Putin, from the Kremlin to take this guy out. And they, in some bass awkward way, decided that the best way to catch the guys was to essentially fake his death and make it look like it had gone through. It's still not entirely clear how that actually helped them catch the guys, but it actually turns out that the Ukrainians do this a lot. It's like their preferred tactic for catching people. So Mark Galliotti, um, who's a, an awesome kind of Russia analyst, wrote this great piece in Foreign Policy. He's talking about how in, in 2016, they staged the death of a local counselor in a Ukrainian town to catch the gangster who had put a hit out on him. Um, in another one, the national police faked the killing of a human rights advocate. And the best one was just this past January. They, they caught the alleged mastermind of this attempted killing of this official by the same tactic, by faking the death. It turns out, in that case, the assassin was the guy's mother-in-law, which, I mean, you think you have a rough mother-in-law. That's pretty rough. But it turns out that they actually do this a lot. So, why, like, it sounds to, like, maybe us, like, this kind of bizarre plot from, like, I don't know, law and order that you would, like, never see in real life. It turns out they actually do this a lot, and it seems to be successful. And according to the Ukrainian security services, they did catch a guy. There's... They have a guy in custody who was like the middleman, who was the one that Putin hired the Ukrainian to go and then find the assassin. So, you know, Ukraine does this a lot. And obviously Russia does this a lot, too. You've had mysterious deaths in, in Ukraine and other places. Zach, you had that quote that you love, which I think is a good one about him apologizing sheepishly to his wife. My favorite quote in all this was from Russia, where a spokesperson there talking about how he was still alive said that Russia was happy he was alive. And this was, was her exact quote. I wish it were always like that. I mean, it's not always like that, 
because of Russia. <laughs> right. So that's actually kind of a, a thing that is really interesting. So there's a broader conversation now happening about like whether this was ethical, right? Whether this was a good idea to do. Because yes, Putin kills journalists and kills dissidents. Like we saw with the, the Skripals. We did an episode previously on the um, nerve gas poisoning. They attempted killing of that, uh, the Russian like ex-spy in London, right? So they do this stuff all the time. Their propaganda kind of war, we saw this in the U.S., right, with the fake news, is to kind of wink and nod. Uh, Galeotti calls it implausible deniability rather than plausible deniability, where they deny that they did it almost with like a wink and a nod. Like, so that statement was like, oh, we wish it were that way all the time. Like, it's kind of like, a, <laughs> get it? Because we're literally killing people. But what they do is they muddy the water to the point that you kind of don't know what is true and what isn't. So there are a lot of concerns that by doing this operation that the Ukrainians essentially helped Russia in their propaganda effort. Because now, and we actually saw this, the, the Russian government spokesperson came out yesterday and said, well, look at the Ukrainians. They did a great job solving the assassination plot that they staged, right? So it's kind of like, oh, I guess you can't trust anything. They're clearly making stuff up. And it was kind of like, well, even though they caught this, you know, this person who was involved in this assassination plot, did they end up essentially shooting themselves in the foot and giving Russia kind of a propaganda win? Because now they can say, oh, look, Ukrainians fake everything, right? It's not true. I don't buy it. Russia has done a really good job at muddying the waters of reality without an effective tactic that caught an assassin that had been working for them. I really don't think the fact that there was one other faked operation, as you said, among many the Ukrainian government has been doing for quite some time, is going to make that much of a difference. And I think the drama of it really calls attention to something that Russia has been doing for quite some time, but, you know, just for some reason doesn't garner the level of attention that it ought to internationally. You know, you had an advisor to the Ukrainian government comparing this in a Facebook post to Sherlock Holmes which I don't want to spoil the new Sherlock show for you, but he does fake his death at the end of the second season. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like you have just No, nah, we're in show. season four. That was in like 2013. Like, come on, people. If you're not caught up, you're not going to catch up. But that kind of high-stakes Hollywood-esque drama is a, is a focusing device, a way of bringing attention to a case that people wouldn't have talked about, the specific case of Arkady Babchenko and the broader issue of Russia killing people inside and outside of its borders and Putin extending a level of control over thought and action of Russian citizens that he shouldn't be able to exert internationally. You know, I think as we close, one last great quote, because it is from uh, our friend Mr. Babchenko himself. This is what he tweeted out after the news of him being alive was made clear. He said he would die at 96 after dancing on Putin's grave. So... He's going out with the fiery hot take on Twitter, uh, and I think— Or not going out, as the case may be. He's <laughs> staying in, apparently, because he's still alive. Which I think is a great way for us to close for the week. Uh, thanks, as always, to our engineer, Bridget Armstrong, to our producers, Bert Pinkerton, Jillian Weinberger. If you like what you've heard, we hope you did, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Rate, review, subscribe. We will be with you all again next week.